from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's a story I've heard about a church that one year they decided they were finally going to make Easter memorable. As if Jesus resurrecting from the grave wasn't memorable enough, they were going to make it memorable. And they decided the way to do this was to enroll the children's ministry, because that's what you do in the church. If you want something to be memorable, you let the children do it. And they made all these costumes, and they taught children their lines, and they got these big sort of tapestries, and they painted them to look like the first century in Palestine. They, they were going to put on a drama. It was going to be a drama of Jesus' final week culminating with Easter on Easter Sunday. Weeks of preparation, programs were printed. The whole town came out for this unforgettable Easter performance. And all went well until it didn't. A few of the kids showed up so late they didn't have time to put on their costumes, so they wore their blue jeans and their t-shirts while they were standing next to Roman centurions. There was a kid who forgot his line so badly he had to hold the program and squint at it, and the director had to tap on the podium to remind him it was his turn to speak. But then at the end, there was this, this, this ultimate moment with the crucifixion, and the little boy who was playing Jesus, he had one line. He was supposed to be hoisted up on this makeshift cross, and he was supposed to say three words. Father, forgive them. It's kind of like the height of this, of this production that they were doing. And as they were getting ready to, to strap little boy Jesus to the cross, the centurions who were responsible for doing it, they started to argue about how to properly adhere little boy Jesus to the cross. And first their words were, were kind of quiet, and then they got louder. And then their words became uh, pushing and shoving. And all the parents thought, is this part of the gospel? Is this what really happened? And then some other kids, like the one who played Mary and the one who played Peter, they got in on the fray because they started arguing about how to hang up Jesus on the cross. And it got to fisticuffs, so much so that the director had to come over and stop it from happening. And right then and there, there was a little girl in the performance. And she shouted just loud enough for everyone to hear, let Jesus speak. And everyone froze in the sanctuary. All the kids who were fighting, let Jesus speak. It was Jesus' words and his voice that first called Peter. Peter was fishing for fish, and then he went to fishing for people. It was Jesus' teachings that started off the whole ministry, these little moments, teachable moments that defied understanding. It was Jesus' preaching on top of the mountain that dwelt deep in Peter's soul, the blessings, the salt, the light, the law. It was Jesus' parable that Peter clung to in those moments of uncertainty, the stories of mustard seeds and prodigals and publicans. And so when Jesus asked his disciples about the truth, who do you say that I am? It's Peter who raises his hand first. Lord, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus, apparently pleased with Peter's proclamation, he pulls back the curtain of the cosmos for a moment and he reveals some more truth. He says, you're right. And in the coming days, I will be handed over to the chief priests and the elders and I will be killed but three days later, I will rise. Now, that doesn't sit well with St. Pete. He says, excuse me, Jesus Christ, I don't think you understand. I don't think you've read the Scriptures well enough. The Messiah can't die. I know I said you're the Messiah, but I don't think you know what it means to be the Messiah. You can't die. You have to set 
everything right. And do you know what Jesus says in response? It's pretty tough. He says, get behind me, Satan. I really hope I never hear Jesus say that to me. Get behind me, Satan. You've got your head stuck on earthly things. I'm here for heavenly things. And then he starts preaching again about this call to self-denial. He says, anybody that wants to follow me, you've got to take up your own cross. We've got work to do. And then he talks about his death again. And now it's six days later. Six days after confession, six days after the rebuke, and Jesus asks Peter, along with James and John, to go to the top of the mountain. They arrive, and immediately Jesus is transfigured. His face shines like the sun. His clothes become dazzling white. Suddenly two figures appear on either side, Moses and Elijah, and they begin to talk. And then Peter speaks for the first time. Now, Scripture doesn't say this, but I like to think this is the first time Peter has uttered a word in a week. Now, I went on a silent retreat that was only two days, but when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, I think that shuts you up for like a week. And then Peter speaks. Lord, it's good for us to be here. Why don't we build some tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We can stay up here on the mountain. And Jesus doesn't even respond. A cloud arrives. It overshadows them, and then from the cloud, the voice. This is my son, the beloved. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when they hear the voice, they're afraid. Jesus reaches out, touches them, and says, Get up, do not be afraid. And when they open their eyes... It's Jesus alone on the mountain. It's the transfiguration. The strange moment already in the strange new world of the Bible. It's the turning point in the gospel from the Galilean mission to the journey toward Jerusalem. For us, it is the turning point between Epiphany Tide and Lent. And the transfiguration is strange. And every year, we proclaim this story as God's word for the people of God. And every time I read it, every time I preach on it, I have more questions. I have more questions. The only thing I'm certain about is that I'm completely uncertain about this story. One of my questions, did Jesus know this was going to happen? Is that why he brought the disciples up? Or was he just as surprised as they were? What in the world did Moses, Jesus, and Elijah talk about? Do you think they were making lunch plans? I mean, it would be great if the gospel told us what they talked about. How did the disciples know that it was Moses and Elijah? It's not like they had Google to look up their faces. They've been dead for hundreds of years. The transfiguration is so bewildering, so confounding. It's part of what makes the strange new world of the Bible so new and so strange. Jesus has just rebuked his chief disciple. He has told all of his followers to take up their cross before they have any inkling that he's going to die on one. And then a week later, they travel to the top of a mountain when Jesus turns into a walking, talking lighthouse with two figures from the Old Testament on either side, and it ends just as soon as it begins. And notably, this is the only time, the only time in the entirety of the gospel that Jesus does not respond to something that someone says. Namely, Peter says, hey, let's start a motel franchise here on the mountain. Jesus doesn't even respond to him. The transfiguration, it shows up every year, once a year. It's this transitional moment for the church, and usually it goes one of two ways. Usually the preacher, like me, will say one of two things about this text. Either we rebuke Peter for his foolishness, 
But then we make the strange and real connection between Peter and all of you. It's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay. It's perfectly fine to be imperfect. Jesus loves Peter even when he messes up, just like Jesus loves you even when you mess up. That's sermon number one. Or, using Peter again, a preacher like me will stand up in a place like this, and we'll talk about Peter and his strange desire to stay on top of the mountain. We'll say things like, the life of faith isn't about those mountaintop moments. We've got to come down from the mountain. We've got to get back to real life, doing the work of the church, helping people in need. The sermon ends with a call to discipleship or a call to mission with a reminder that the mountaintop moment motivates us toward movement. It's either Peter is just like you or you've got work to do. Transfiguration one, transfiguration two. Preaching. Now, let me admit to you that preaching is weird. Preaching is very strange, and this is coming from the one who does it every week. It is astounding to me that God gives me something to say week after week, and even more astounding is that people show up to listen. I mean, nowhere else in life will people sit down and listen to someone else talk uninterrupted for 15 minutes. It is so weird that we do this, and by we, I mean me. It's so weird. I know a, a, a preacher who, he got a grant to study preaching, and, and he got this money, and he traveled all across the country, and he listened to different preachers every Sunday morning because he was going to write a book about preaching. And at the end of this journey across the country and listening, someone said to him, what's the, what's the number one takeaway that you have from listening to all those different preachers on Sunday morning? And he said, if anyone hears anything in a sermon, it's a miracle. If anyone hears anything in a sermon, it's a miracle. Whew! That's a tough word. Now, on one level, his comment is a critique about the very sorry state of preaching in the church today, yours truly included. I never know what's going to happen when I sit down to write a sermon. I never know what's going to happen when I stand up here and preach it. Preaching is foolish. That's what Paul says. Preaching is a foolish endeavor. We all know it's foolish because you listen to this fool every week. We all know it. It's foolish because preachers preach week after week with the hope that miraculously, God's people, all of you, will hear a revelation from God. And yet divine revelation is not within the control of the preacher. God speaks however God wants. Sometimes, rarely, God actually does speak through a preacher. I'll let you be the judge of whether or not that happens. Because more often than not, when God speaks, it's in spite of the preacher. Again, you can be the judge. Only God can speak for God. Which means, oddly enough, that that other preacher is right. If anyone hears anything in a sermon, it is a miracle. Because preaching God's word, hearing God speak, is miraculous. Just like the transfiguration. Peter and company, they experience a miracle. They get to witness a peek behind the curtain of the cosmos. In this one brilliantly beautiful moment, they see the real truth in front of them that Paul will later intone with the words, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That shining light, that is God radiating on top of the mountain. And yet, for some reason, preachers, people like me, we like to take this miracle, and instead of focusing on the miracle, we focus on Peter. We make our theology into anthropology. 
Focusing on Peter, it makes this extraordinary story ordinary, which undermines the miracle that is the transfiguration. The gospel, the good news, is not found in Peter and his friends cowering on the mountain, and it's certainly not in the idea of getting back down from the mountain to do good things for other people, because we know we're supposed to be doing good things for other people whether we know Jesus or not. The gospel, the good news, is Jesus Christ and him transfigured. The light that is shining through his flesh is the same light that's the result of the one who said, let there be light. It's the same light that spoke to Moses through a burning bush. It's the same light that eventually burns Moses' skin and makes him glow after he's been on the mountain. It's the same light that blazes in the whirlwind that takes Elijah into the sky. If the point of the transfiguration is to just give us a little encouragement when we're afraid or a call to more do-goodery, then it is not sufficient for the sin-sick world we find ourselves in. If that's all this is, then it doesn't give us any hope. Or if it does, it gives us hope in ourselves. Again, that's anthropology. That's not theology. If the hope we need is in us, then we should have fixed all the world's problems by now. The great and staggering truth of the strange new world of the Bible is that we need all the help and all the hope we can get because we know that not all is as it ought to be. And yet, Jesus calls for us to go to the mountain, even when we, like Peter, get it all wrong. He calls us to worship him, to adore him, and in so doing, in adoring the transfigured Christ, we become transfigured ourselves. Take it from Peter. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more Jesus invades your life and fills it with impossible possibilities. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you hear what he has to say. If you leave church today, or any day for that matter, with even the slightest inkling that you've heard something from God, it's a miracle. It is certainly not a testament to my preaching. It is not a testament to the wonderful music ministries we have here at church. If you hear God speak, it's a miracle. Did you notice that when Peter starts getting all these funny ideas on the mountaintop, Jesus doesn't light into him like he did the week before. He doesn't say, get behind me, Satan, again. Instead, that's when the cloud shows up. The cloud overshadows them. It's as if the Lord is saying, Pete, for once, would you just shut up? Would you please just, would you just listen? For once, shh, be quiet and listen. The rest of the gospel story, it reminds us that Jesus is crucified in our vain attempt to get him to stop talking. But even the grave can't stop the word of God made flesh from speaking. What does Jesus say at the end? Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Despite all the reasons God should have left us behind, should have abandoned us in our valleys and even on our mountains, God is still with us. God is still speaking to us. That's why we look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That's why we listen to him. Because when we do, we begin, thank God, to look and sound more like Jesus. We start to move as he moves. We start to see as we are seen. We start to hear as we are heard. That's our hope. The hope of our own transfiguration. The hope of holding what we behold. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews calls that a better hope. Our hope is not in us. Our hope is in Jesus Christ.
That is why we behold the transfigured Jesus. We bask in His light that is the light eternal. It is why we let Jesus speak. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen.